church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put a cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and he said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Be seated. Thank you, Dean. Thank you, thank you. My name is Aaron, by the way. Let me add my welcome uh, to the teams this morning. If if you are uh, new in the last four weeks, this might be the first time you're seeing me, uh, so it's good to meet you for the first time. Uh, I have been out of the pulpit for a couple weeks, um, grateful for the staff that we have here at Lake Forest. It gives me a chance, my family and I, we got to go visit my parents in Texas. It was a huge, huge gift to us, uh, but I am excited to be back teaching again, if not a little rusty. If you hear some creaks when my elbows bend, you know, we can break out the WD-40 and we'll get through it together. Uh, well, I want to start off today um, by sharing with you about a movie I saw while we were in Texas. How many of y'all have seen The Black Panther? How many? Just quick show of hands. But a couple of, okay, it, uh, let me tell you about this movie because it is a phenomenal movie. If you haven't seen it, I highly commend it to you. 1.2 billion, billion with a B, greatest grossing superhero movie in the history of superhero movies. Did you know that? Unbelievable. Uh, uh, so much to love about this movie. I'm not a huge Marvel Comics guy. 
So I have to fact check everything with my kids unless they absolutely abandon me and ostracize me for making mistakes. They are big comic fans. Um, but so much I love about this. The graphics are phenomenal. The fight scenes are phenomenal. Uh, the fact that they cheer for the right NFL team from Charlotte is great about the movie. Uh, but more than anything, more than anything, what got me about this movie is the story. Uh, it's really a story of a uh, rising king in a fictional land in Africa called Wakanda. Basic story goes like this. After the death of his father, T'Challa returns home to take his rightful place as king. The problems in the world are many. Evil is rampant. And Wakanda has the power to remedy this evil. But Wakanda face, uh, excuse me, T'Challa faces some decisions he has to make. Uh, the elders, uh, kind of his council, they want him just to stay out of it. Let's not, get, let's not get messed up in the world. We don't need to worry about that stuff. His best friend wants him to use, the power, uh, use this power to rule and to dominate and to control. But T'Challa has this inner sense that that's not what it means to be a king. And he has to answer this question for himself, what kind of king am I going to be? Will I be a king that rules with an iron fist and dominion, or will I be a king who risks even his own life for the benefit of others? Y'all, this movie has gospel stank all over it. It's awesome. Plus, the end of the movie, just so you know, uh, the Panther, he goes and he defeats the Patriots, the Eagles, the Falcons, and the Broncos in Super Bowl 2019. It's awesome. Well, Dean already mentioned today we come to what is known as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. That is the Sunday before Easter, the day that Jesus enters Jerusalem as its rightful king. Some of you have grown up in churches where you used to take little palm fronds, y'all remember this, and you twist them into swords. No, they were actually crosses, but they looked like, right? You used it as a sword to poke your sister. That's kind of what you did on Palm Sunday. And uh, you probably wondered what this whole palm thing was about. Well, the palm fronds were simply the uh, item that was a symbol of a king entering into the capital city. Palm fronds were waved in honor of the king. Jesus enters Jerusalem as its true king, and the crowds come out. But Luke tells us at the beginning of his gospel that this idea of Jesus as king is what the whole story has been about from the very beginning. Luke, in his biography of Jesus, begins with the Christmas narrative. Y'all remember the Christmas story? The baby, the angel says, the baby in your womb, Mary, will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne, that's king language, of David. He will reign, that's king language, over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, Jesus grew up, Luke tells us. He grew in wisdom and stature. And when he began teaching, he proclaimed that the kingdom of God was near. Jesus' favorite topic in all the topics to teach on was the kingdom of God. The kingdom is like a mustard seed, Jesus says. The kingdom is like a banquet. The kingdom is like a field. The kingdom is uh, what we are to seek first and foremost. Everywhere he went, he preached about the kingdom. Then in Luke 19, the day comes for Jesus and his band of followers to enter the great city of Jerusalem, the capital city, the city of King David. Jesus sends two of his men ahead to fetch a donkey, this was a little odd. Normally kings or generals would ride into the capital city on a, on a stallion, on a horse. But not Jesus. As he entered the city, Luke tells us that the crowds, they began singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
It's what is often called Jesus' triumphal entry. But as the story progresses, it hardly seems like a triumph. For by the end of this week, by this Friday, just five days after Jesus enters Jerusalem, he will be falsely accused, put on trial, given the death penalty. He will be beaten to the point that he almost dies. He will be hung on a cross between two common thieves. The soldiers will make a makeshift sign above his head that reads King of the Jews. And the question that everyone will ask who sees him, the question that will be on the forefront of every person is this. What kind of king is Jesus? If Jesus is really king, why is this happening? If Jesus is king, what kind of king is he? Well, that's the question I want to consider with you today. The entirety of Luke chapter 23 is all about this question. It's all about King, King Jesus. And what I want to do with you today is a little bit different because on Palm Sunday, there's, there's somewhat of a sober tone that our text takes. There's not going to be a whole lot of humor or anecdotes in today's sermon. Instead, I simply want us to hear this story again as if for the first time. And I want us to look at three responses to this king that we see in this chapter. Because here's what I think. Here's what I think. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're investigating faith, maybe you're a skeptic, here's what I believe. If we could actually see what is happening in this chapter, if we can actually understand what Luke is telling us, it might change the very way we think about Jesus. Look with me at how Luke describes this scene at the beginning of our story. He opens it this way. He says, As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Poor Simon of Cyrene. Why does Luke open the scene with this seemingly unnecessary detail? It's one sentence. Simon doesn't speak. He doesn't do anything after this. He doesn't do anything before this. He exists in this one sentence. There's no dialogue. Why bother telling us about it? Well, you guys are smart people, and you might think, well, they want, he wants us to see just how weak Jesus is at this point. You remember Jesus has been beaten. He's been on trial. And maybe Luke's point is to show us just how physically tired he is. He can't carry the crossbeam that the soldiers made the criminals carry up the hill. Maybe that's the point. Yes, you would be on to something, but why mention Simon's name? Why not just call out that there was some random stranger who carried this beam? No, Luke gives us Simon's name, and he gives us his name for this reason. Simon and or Simon's children were a part of Luke's church. In the ancient world, there was no such thing as footnotes. Y'all remember footnotes from school or endnotes? How many of you had to do endnotes? Endnotes, footnotes, I don't know. What do they use today? English teachers? I don't even know, right? But, but a footnote is a little number that tells you something about the factual basis of what was just cited in the paragraph. In the Bible, there is no such thing as an actual footnote. This is Luke's version of an ancient footnote. He's saying, listen, I talked to these people firsthand, and if you want to fact check me, and I hope you do, you can go and talk to Simon. Mark does a similar thing in his gospel. He actually tells us that Simon's children were named Alexander and Rufus. If you don't believe the events I'm telling you, go and ask these guys. 
they're in your church. Luke is documenting his sources. If you've ever wondered about the reliability of these accounts, or if you've ever wondered, how do we know that this is actually true? Luke is your guy. When Luke sat down to write his gospel, he tells us he went to eyewitnesses to get the data firsthand. He wrote this account no more than 25 years after Jesus' death, which means these eyewitnesses and their children were still alive. And as I mentioned, what a lot of scholars believe is that Simon, Simon of Cyrene was actually a member of Luke's church. Luke is saying to his readers, you want to check the facts? Just go ask Simon. You mean Simon from Iron Station? No, Simon from Cyrene. Oh, that's Simon. There's your one joke for the sermon. How was that? Was that a good one? Well, let's get back to the story. Luke picks up just a few verses later. He says this, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, Can you imagine being executed at a place called the Skull? They crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Now, this is one of those verses that when we read it, uh, we're tempted to just kind of roll right past it, right? That word crucified, especially for those who've grown up in the church, it can just seem so familiar. We don't even pause to think about it. But there is so much packed into this one word. You see, the Romans had not so much invented crucifixion as they had perfected it. There were many different ways a person could be crucified. You could have your hands tied on a horizontal beam with nails driven through your wrist to suspend you there. You could be crucified on a single beam with your hands above you, perhaps out of an economic decision because it took fewer stakes to kill you. Still others were crucified upside down. The Romans were endlessly creative in the way they executed people that they did not like, criminals they wanted to get rid of. But while the methods varied, the goal was always the same. The goal of crucifixion was to make an example out of the person through the slowest, most painful death possible. You know, it's interesting. I was doing some research this week on this, and I I learned something new I did not know. Our our movies portray uh, the crucifixion as people being lifted or hoisted up really high above the crowd. Have you ever seen that in movies? Do you know that the Romans, when they crucified someone, they actually never suspended them much more than seven or eight inches off the ground. Because the goal was mockery. The goal was ridicule. The goal was to make an example out of the person that would strike fear in the hearts of the people. And how much better if you could walk up to the person being crucified and look in the face and see the look of horror and pain that they were suffering. The Romans had perfected crucifixion. Luke tells us that there were two others being crucified that day, and we don't know their names. We don't even know what they did. Some of you have probably heard that these guys, uh, you've probably heard them described as thieves, the two thieves on the crosses next to Jesus, uh, which kind of probably is too nice of a way of describing it. It almost paints the picture of like Oliver, you know, you've got to pick a bucket or something. You know, it's just, but that's, that's not at all. The word here that's used is the word crema, where we get our word criminal. And it was the lowest, lowest, lowest punishment. The worst punishment possible in the Roman Empire. Crucifixions, by the way, were exceedingly expensive. You had to hire a minimum of four soldiers. You had to pay them for multiple days' work. It was was not a cost-effective way of getting rid of someone. In fact, to be crucified actually within the Roman government meant that you were utterly useless and worthless. 
The Roman economy existed on slave labor, and the criminal, uh, criminals were the primary source for that slave labor. If you were just a common thief, you would likely then be sold as a slave to a business or sold as a slave into the military. That was sort of the lightest weight punishment. If you, if you were not useful as a slave, uh, you would be sold into a uh, chain gang doing physical labor or perhaps uh, rowing a boat. You guys remember Ben-Hur, the movie Ben-Hur? Right? That's because, you know, everybody's at least useful for rowing a boat. But if you were not useful as a slave in a business or military, you were not useful for rowing a boat. You were utterly useless, useless, worthless to everyone. The Roman government had one use for you, and that was to make a spectacle of you before everyone else. To say, if you would ever challenge Caesar, this is the fate that you will incur. Well, it's here that we see the first of our three responses to Jesus. Verse 35. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the King, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up face to face and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are, are the King of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this, this is the King of the Jews. So what are the crowds saying here? What do the people think of King Jesus? Here's what they're saying. They're saying, Jesus, if you really are king, then you would not be in this predicament right now. Jesus, if you really were a king, you would not be losing right now. Jesus, if you really are God, then none of this should be happening right now. And I think many in our world echo this response and refrain today. I was thinking about how to illustrate this, and it seems just pithy and silly, but what came to mind is the first football game I ever took my kids to when we were living in Los Angeles. Uh, we went to see UCLA play Arizona State at the Rose Bowl. UCLA was my alma mater, and they used to play their games in the Rose Bowl, regular season games. So I took my kids, their very first one. I was so excited. We had all the gear on. It's going to be awesome. And we're there, and we are cheering loud for the first Three quarters. By the third quarter, Arizona State had run up the score 34 to 0. And it was at this point that my kids turned to me and said, Dad, is it okay if we cheer for Arizona State? They're the only ones scoring. <laughs> See, nobody likes a loser, do they? Nobody likes to cheer for the loser. And in this way, I think this is a kind of lens into what was happening in the crowd during that Holy Week. You'll remember on Sunday, the palms were out, right? Hey, go Jesus! You made it! You're in the 16! You're on my bracket! You're going to take the whole thing, Jesus! We are with you! And then as the week progressed, and eventually Friday comes, and Jesus' bracket is totally busted, what do His fans do? They jump ship. They jump on the Loyola bandwagon. They're like, we're all in, right? See, Jesus... We like it when you come in strength and power and victory. But we're not sure we want to follow you when you come in weakness. What kind of king was he? I think this is actually the same kind of thinking behind the famous 20th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who sometimes I think gets a bad rap. Nietzsche wrote a famous article called God is Dead. Perhaps you have heard of it. 
But see, Nietzsche was just making a point based on what he saw in the world around him. Nietzsche looked around and he saw all the violence and the suffering and the injustice and he concluded that if there was a God, he must be dead because if this God was alive, he would have done something about this by now. And maybe you've had that same thought or that same question. God, if you are really real, then why? 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 A God who suffers, a God who enters into weakness, Nietzsche says, is no God at all. But what Nietzsche could not see, and what the crowds could not see, what the soldiers could not see, what the religious leaders could not see that day was this, that Jesus was doing something. It just wasn't what they expected. What kind of king was he? You see, what we will soon discover is that on the cross... In his greatest moment of suffering, in his greatest apparent moment of defeat, Jesus was absorbing all the pain, all the injustice, all the bitterness, all the spite, all the anger, all the death, all the rage, everything that is wrong in the world. He said, put it on me, I will take it. And he absorbed it, ending with him as he died. What kind of king? Was he? See, G.K. Chesterton famously described it this way. He said, The greatest display of God's strength was not the fact that they put him on the cross. God's greatest display of strength was that he stayed there. Jesus put it this way. He said, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down by my own accord, and I can take it back up again if I want to. What kind of king was he? Well, that leads to our second response to our first criminal. Look with me at how Luke describes this second character. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Are you the Messiah? Are you the king? Save yourself and us. Now notice what's happening here. This criminal, who's hanging on a cross next to Jesus, picks up on the same refrain that the crowd was just hurling at him. If you really are a king, then save yourself. But then he adds something else. Do you see it? He adds, and us, and me, Jesus. Now the author, Tim Keller, points out, when we first read this cry from this criminal, it seems like it might actually be a prayer of repentance. But then we sit with it for a moment and it reveals that it is quite altogether something different. This criminal is doing what you and I have probably done when we have found ourselves at the bottom of a deep, deep mess of our own making. Have you ever been there? When we find ourselves in the midst of our own mess, we often pray a prayer like this. God, if you will get me out of this one, God, I will. And then you just kind of fill in the blank. Whatever you think your best bargaining chip is, right? God, if you will just get me out of this financial mess, I pr- God, if you will just let me win the lottery, I promise I'll give you 1.3%, right? Just, God, whatever. Like, you start making deals with God, right? God, if you will just cause my spouse to come back to me, God, I'll go to church every Sunday for the next hundred years. Like you just, I mean, you're not going to do it, but you start bartering with God, right? God, if you will let my child get into that school, make that program, I will fill in the blank. 
You see, this criminal is not offering a prayer of surrender, but a prayer of barter. He's trying to strike a deal with God. You see, these aren't prayers of surrender. Uh, they're more these prayers of deal-making. One other example of this, I was thinking in our own lives how I experienced this. Parents, have you ever heard this one? Dad, if you really loved me, you would let me have the car Friday night, right? Mom, if you really loved me, you would give me that new phone. I mean, if you really loved me. See, it's not really about love, is it? It's about trying to strike a deal. Keller points out that when we pray these deal-making prayers, what we, what we don't want is Jesus as king. We don't want Jesus as king. He says what we actually want is Jesus the divine butler. Jesus the personal assistant. Jesus the guy I can text or, or I am when I need something, and then the rest of the time, Jesus, would you just stay out of my way? But it's not King Jesus. We want the get-out-of-jail-free card, but Jesus doesn't play that game. And this is what the old-timey preachers used to call the lordship. I feel like I say the lordship of Jesus, right? The lordship of Jesus. That Jesus is lord. That Jesus is king. And he refuses to be reduced to the role of a divine butler. Well, the criminal couldn't see this. And he certainly couldn't receive it. He wasn't interested in surrendering to Jesus. He was only interested, notice this, in saving his own skin. He says, Jesus, man, save yourself. And hey, get me out of this mess while you're at it, Jesus. Jesus, if you're the Messiah, prove it. And the irony is, the irony is that the God of the universe was ten feet from this guy's face. The first criminal, excuse me, the first uh, response to Jesus of the crowd is to ridicule. The second response we see in this criminal is to reject. But there's a third response we see in this passage, and I want to spend the rest of our time there. Look at how Luke continues. Now, all this time, there's another criminal on the other side, and he's been watching. He's been listening. In fact, the other gospel writers tell us that he's actually been hurling insults at Jesus himself. He's been swept up in the commotion. He too has been spitting every bit of venom he can imagine at Jesus. But then something happens. Something changes. Something turns. And here's what I think it was. Because remember, this guy is not more than 10 feet from Jesus. He could hear every groan of pain. He could see every struggle for breath. He watched as people mocked Jesus, spit on him, beat him. He saw as the soldiers gambled away Jesus' clothes. He saw as they taunted him with that cheap, bitter wine. He may have even been there for that moment. And just for a moment thinking how glad he was that Jesus was there to take some of the heat off of him. But then something happened. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of all the insults and mocking and jeering, he heard Jesus pray. Three words. Father, forgive them. When men are dying, they don't call for their fathers, do they? Who do they call for? Their mothers, This is not a cry for help. Oh, God. Oh, Mom. 
There's something else going on here. This rabbi, this righteous man, Jesus, was calling out to his God. Father. But it wasn't just that he was calling out to his God. He's not asking for mercy or for deliverance or for anything for himself. Instead, instead, what he's asking for, what he's praying for, is that his Father would forgive those that are killing him. Can you imagine such a prayer? Jesus is there, seven inches off the ground. I want you to picture this. He's there. They're spitting on him. They're hurling insults at him. They're beating him, mocking anything and everything they can do to Jesus. And the only response that Jesus gives them is to quietly, under his breath, such that only the criminals on his side could hear, he prays, Father, would you forgive my enemies? What kind of king is this? And I think that it's at this moment, hanging just a few feet away from Jesus, that everything in this man suddenly changes. Look at his response. He bursts out in defense of Jesus, yelling, rebuking, Luke says, the other criminal. Luke puts it this way. He he says, don't you fear God? Don't you see what's happening here? Since you and I are under this same sentence, we are being punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. Don't you see? Don't you see what's going on here? What if he actually is the Messiah? What if he actually is the King? Don't you fear? See, I imagine something in that moment broke in that man. And, and the floodgates of regret and shame and just everything from his, everything he's ever done, even, even the fraternity stuff in college, I mean, just everything, right? Just comes flooding. He's like, oh, man, we've blown it. We haven't loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. We've done all kinds of shameful, harmful, hurtful things to this world. But this guy, this guy who prays for his enemies, he's done nothing wrong. And yet he's suffering the same sentence as we are. It's at this moment that the man turns to Jesus and he prays, This one prayer, the one thing he asks of Jesus, has now echoed down through the centuries. He prays this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Not, Jesus, hey, listen, man, uh, when I get down from this cross, I'm turning a new leaf. You just watch. I'm going to do a lot better. You know, hey, I've already got my self-improvement project in my day plan. I mean, just Jesus. No, no. The guy can't do anything. He's dying on a cross. He can't do anything. All he does is he cries out to Jesus and says, Jesus, will you remember me? When you, the true king, enter your kingdom. Jesus, when I die, will you hold my life in your hands? Of all the people on that day, of everyone in the crowd, of every religious leader, every soldier, all the other criminals, 
Only this man sees Jesus for the true king that he is. Only this man responds with recognition. And I just want to kind of have a moment of confession. I I, I want to tell you what deeply, deeply, deeply good news that is for me. Because you see, the the truth that we learn from this criminal is that it's not good people who go to heaven. That's not how this whole thing works. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Do you see that? This criminal who could do nothing right from this point forward casts himself solely on the mercy of this righteous, just king. And what does he receive in response? Grace upon grace upon grace. What does Jesus say? My friend, today you will be with me in paradise. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Have you ever prayed a prayer of surrender? Jesus, I I, I can't do this on my own. I want you to be my king. See, the truth is that Jesus could get what he deserved or he could get what he wanted, but he could not have both. Jesus did not deserve the death he died. He deserved to be honored, revered, worshipped, adored as king. But he could not get what he deserved and get what he wanted. Because what he wanted was relationship with you and with me. Jesus was ridiculed, rejected, beaten, mocked, spit upon, taunted, tortured, and killed. And though he deserved none of it, he endured all of it so that he could get what he wanted, which is you. Why did Jesus, the King, go to the cross? The Bible is unequivocally clear. Because of love for you. You were worth that to Him. He could get what He deserved or He could get what He wanted and He chose you. Another one of the Bible writers puts it this way. They say, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the question that I want to leave us with today, the question that Luke presents for us now. What kind of king was Jesus? He was the kind of king that would sacrifice his own life to save his people, to save you. That's the answer to the question. But the follow-up question for you and me is what kind of criminal will we be? What kind of criminal will we be? The truth is we, we all have to make that choice. We are all either the criminal holding his fists clenched tight in spite and anger and rejection of Jesus. Or we are the criminal who opens our hands to his mercy and says, Jesus, I don't deserve this love. But would you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? Luke says, the choice is yours. The choice is mine. A life of rage 
or a life of surrender, which criminal will you be? Can we pray? Would you bow your heads? Before I lead us in a closing prayer, I just want to give you a moment to reflect in the quietness of your heart. It's a heavy message. It's a hard message to hear, to look at the depth of Jesus' suffering for us. But the Bible said there was one thing and one thing alone that compelled him to do it, and that was his love for you. So in this moment, would you reflect in your heart, in your life? Have you surrendered your life to this king? Have you opened your hands to him to say, Jesus, I want to recognize you as my Lord? Or are you living with fists clenched, insisting on your own way? His gift is the gift of life, life abundant, life to its fullest here on earth and in the life after death. It's a free gift. All we have to do is open our hands to him. Let me lead us, and you can pray this prayer with me if you would like, whether you've been a Christian for years or this might be your first time. Jesus, today we pause to recognize that you are king. And though you deserve honor and glory and praise and obedience and worship, instead, you laid down those things and died the death that we deserve. So today, Jesus, we declare again that you are king and that we want you to be our king. Would you fill us with your grace and your life? And would you give us the courage to follow you as the leader of our lives. We thank you for dying for us. We thank you for all that you suffered for us. Today we say, thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.